Welcome to the Brilliant Podcast. spend much of our time feeling dull, stultified, numb. Much of what we do is compulsory or routine. It stems from things we like least about ourselves, and often we feel weak. We wait and wait for the end of our shift, for when we can go to bed and end the day, for the weekend or the vacation, for the fix from the bottle, the sugar, or the Netflix. The hum of electronics, the dribble of advertisements and news, and sometimes even the tiresome small talk among those we call our friends coalesce into a drone that, at times, seems to drown out any other possibility. We are told we've arrived, the end of history, the land of the free, the best of all possible worlds. But some of us feel, deeply and undeniably, that a different life is possible. We know this possibility in our flesh, for we have felt moments of ecstasy, joy, and freedom that are burnt so indelibly into our consciousnesses as to preclude any doubt. We call these moments, and the people who have felt them, the brilliant, because they are glorious to feel and yet dangerous to know, for they beckon us to a lifeway of passion that is not easily slaked by a world that rewards torpor. The Brilliant Podcast is an effort to share those moments and to foster them, to tell stories and explore ideas in a way that stokes our passions and reminds us that a world of ecstasy and mystery lies buried, but alive, beneath the malaise and drudge that tries daily to convince us that it is all that is, has ever been, or could be. So welcome to episode 10 of The Brilliant Podcast, where we take a second attempt at talking about indigeneity, and this is going to be our special, exceptionally sleep-deprived edition of The Brilliant. So yeah, we're, we're having a sort of contest on who has slept less before this uh, recording session. <laughs> so I've uh, ingested about as much uh, caffeine as I can handle without starting to sort of babble incoherently, so we will do our best here. And, um, yeah, do you want to start off with... We'll begin with listener feedback. We'll begin with listener feedback. had some responses to our comments about the haters podcast and they have expressed um an interest in having what they're calling a dialogue which is usually something that happens in person but is in this case something that happens partially through audio media partially through <laughs> anarchistnews.org comments and uh in particular uh, with me there was um some sort of suspicion or questions thrown my way uh, involving some comments about my sex life, which is something that generally people experience when they're, you know, in person with me. But uh, 
in this case, there was doubt thrown on the fact that, you know, can we get outside the oppressive structures that overdetermine our lives, or are we, in fact, just overdetermined by them, and so more or less um, caught up in the sort of flows of cultural power. And my point wasn't really to, to be about sex per se, although that's somehow what it turned into, but rather, you know, the intro that I give to this podcast is really about do we have moments of of passion and freedom and are those you know just sort of phenomenal illusions or are they genuine and i think there's certainly a way in which you could say yeah we're we're socialized to death and we're caught up in these structures and all we can really do is articulate those possibilities but um i guess it becomes a question of what what freedom really is, and I think both on this podcast and in Free Radical Radio, I like to throw a lot of doubt over the word freedom, and I guess it becomes a question of if we really are caught up in these structures, then is the only sense in which we understand freedom the moments that we can transgress against those structures, and so is that freedom then this sort of partial or secondary freedom that exists only in transcribing, or I'm sorry, transgressing against prescribed limits. I was invited into this conversation uh, more or less to, to, to justify my uh, appreciation for the <laughs> more visceral aspects of uh, cinema production. And um, it, it really has, uh, a lot of things this week are going to uh, dovetail to a problem that I'm having with the idea of using this podcast as an analytical tool. I think the reason that I prefer the audio format over the written format is that in the audio format, you can sort of ebb and flow. You can not know what the end of your sentence is going to be when you start it. You can change your mind uh, uh, easily, and, and you can be, um, from my perspective, circumspect. Whereas in writing, you know, you're saying one thing, you have one chance to say it, you say it, you're done. So, uh, So for me... The idea of analyzing the fact that I appreciate big explosions, and that and that I would qualify as an American consumer of American cinema, uh, I'm not sure what else needs to be said, um, other other than to sort of like say that we can have conversations about media consumption, and 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 etc. But that's a different conversation than like how do I appreciate or do I appreciate Hollywood, on its terms or on mine. Yeah, and in the spirit of not knowing what the end of my sentence is going to be before, um, or as I'm starting it, I I guess I would say it. the reason that I was attracted to anarchism and radical thought is that I do think there's something meaningful about those moments of passion and freedom, even if there's a way that they're pseudo-freedom and that it's it only feels free because you were um, hemmed in in the first place. But if it weren't possible to go over those limits, then it wouldn't really be very meaningful to have these kinds of conversations in the first place. And I think the fact that we can have these critical conversations, the fact that we can do things that are against um, the law, against the, um, the sort of modes of being implied by reification, means that, yes, that there are ways, I think, that we can break out of these things, even if they are temporary, even if they are tenuous, even if they are artificial, because they're things that we would be able to do anyway. 
And I don't think we, you know, we can have these sort of, like, oh, do you really go beyond gendered norms or do you really go beyond capitalism? Well, I don't really know what that is because I've never existed there and neither has anyone else who is alive. We have a lot of content this week, so we're going to move on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, this is, uh, we're going to talk about two stories from the news this week. Uh, the first is an article by William Gillis named, oh, geez, I... A quick and dirty critique of primitivist and anti-civ thought. Mostly, um, when it comes to William Gillis, you know, I appreciate the fact that he, he provokes from outside. He, uh, especially in the social media world, I constantly feel like he's, he's taking jabs at what he perceives my position to be. Um, and uh, uh, so this article, sort of true to form, is, is lots of thrashing about against uh, per- perceived enemies who sort of don't pay that much attention to William, and so so that's embedded in a lot of his criticisms, is like the fact that nobody's sort of paying attention to him. But in this particular uh, thread on Anarchist News, there's a fascinating and really engaged conversation with with the article. And uh, this is actually Anarchist News at its best, and uh, so mostly I'm interested in talking about the, the comment section. Mm-hmm. Um, I did want to touch on the article for a moment, mm-hmm. just to, to point out what and this is not meant to be some kind of uh, full, substantive, good-faith response to what William's saying. I, I would say it's it's almost the opposite in every respect. But uh, some of the claims that I found to be zanier were, first, he frames the piece, because even though he calls it primitivist and anti-safe thought, it's really about primitivism. And he tries to uh, hedge it by saying, really, every anti-safe critique is in some way derivative of primitivism, which is... Actually, before you go further... Sure. An important preface to this piece, and and I think a, uh, a thing that that threads through a lot of William's writing, is um, uh, is William begging to be psychoanalyzed, and so when we're talking about primitivism in this case, I do believe that he's talking about his father. Mm, Continue. Okay. Interesting. Um, I actually agreed with some of what William had to say about the technology critique that often conversations about technology within green anarchism revolve around a kind of aesthetic horror that often involves like capitalizing the word machine you know as if it's this more or less easily recognized thing that is the metaphysical other that's coming at you and trying to eat you um and i I agree with what he's saying about you know grafting as technology i'd say extracting tannins from acorns by soaking them in a river with a net is technology there's plenty of things that are you know technique and I mean, division of labor. Division of labor is technology. You could say the various family forms are technologies. But where I, I really take issue with <laughs> with him is uh, where he tries to say that a tenet of anti-civ theory is to be against thinking. Where he says, thinking, reflection itself, is taken as a corrupting tendency that must be rejected because it can lead bad places. He goes on for a bit and eventually says... The corruption of large parts of the primitive scene to anti-civ nihilism has been the inevitable result. Um, he calls immediatism undeath. <laughs> and this, to me, all just seems incredibly either 
misconstrued or just deliberately bad faith and devious. Uh, I'm guessing, as we talked about on episode eight, that what he's really talking about here is Jay-Z's origins essays, which really are just critiques of reification, um, a call for a sort of radical humility that it does not want this sort of totalizing thought that uh, the world can be captured in this sort of transcendent narrative, although that now that is more where um, uh, some of the primitivist conversation is. And I, I think to call a critique of reification against thinking is is just misleading. It makes the... It's silly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's also a little bit where he describes bioregionalism. He doesn't call it that, but living on the small scale, living in the uh, immediate habitat prison. He calls it the death of creativity, a loss of opportunity to understand nature, and eventually, quote, an inescapable and monotonous primitive Eden, end quote. This all feels psychoanalytical. It doesn't feel like he's making these assertions that he hopes to provoke some response to, which he actually didn't get very much response in the in in the this thread. Um, but but mostly, it all just feels like like he's upset about something from his personal past. I I mean that's my take. Yeah. That's my take. Sure. Um, yeah. I don't I don't know the author. What the way that I read it was more. Um, which I, I hate to say a, a decent number of anarchist essays, especially ones that go up on A News, um, it often feels as if the author is responding to a few people that they met, like at the Food Not Bombs hangout, or like the person they used to live with at the squat that was just so obnoxious and they're so stupid for all these reasons and they would never listen to me. So now I'm going to write this essay where I take down their views, and then, you know, the response from people who were not part of that conversation is, who are you talking to? The, the, I'm a primitivist, and I don't think these things. And, yeah, so. I mean, again, I I do think, separate from the psychoanalytical analysis, that um, that Gillis more than most is is in it to win it, meaning that he sees anarchism as a set of ideas that are in contest with each other, right. and he has a set of ideas that are. Unusual Superior. and yeah, I mean, I mean, he basically has a set of ideas that he would like to see, you know, be more influential and have more of an effect. I mean, this is always one of the things, you know, we, we've now talked about this a lot uh, during the podcast. This idea that there's this anti-civilization nihilism creeping, right. you know, creeping. and and what that's a statement of is that is that some position that I guess can be identified as an anti-civilization nihilist perspective, people feel like. Pe- is resonating is is like in the air, mm-hmm. and but there isn't sort of a clear person who stand, stood up and said, "I am the anti-civ nihilist. Right. Here is here are my ten points." Right. And and so without that, um, a lot of these essay writers uh, sort of are, are at a loss. They want to identify an enemy, but the enemy isn't sort of like doing the proper thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like in an action movie, you know, the good guy wears white, the bad guy wears black. And, and, you know, about two-thirds of the way through the movie, they have their first fight. The person in black wins that fight, chases away the bad person. They then, you know, go to their guru, get a couple more lessons, and then come back and, and win the day and get the girl at the end. And, and this, so, so for me, it feels like Gillis has written this sort of essay a couple different times where they're like, you know, you've, bef- you've befuddled me before. Now my, my ninjutsu is much better. Or kung fu. Yeah, I think they're... There's this kind of call for, like, we want the book to be written so that we can pour through the book and then, you know, write a response to it that's twice as long. And and then, 
<laughs> and I'm just reminded of David Hume saying, you know, philosophers like to think that you know, they battle with their ideas and then the best ideas win, but that's just not how it is. Absolutely not. No, <laughs> the, the way that ideas win is much different than that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I think that's enough on William Gillis. It's temp- as tempting as it is to just talk about his howlers all, all the time. Um, yeah, I actually limited myself to only half of the ones that I wanted to talk <laughs> yeah. about. Yeah, well, um, yeah, I mean, the Coffins line is almost worth... Oh, okay, yeah, I, let's not get distracted here. Um, Rojave. Five reportbacks now from uh, our friend El Arante, who has traveled uh, to get a first-person perspective on, from an anarchist perspective, uh, on Rojave, and so uh, these have been very nice um, reportbacks. Uh, I've lots to say about the phenomena of going going there. What are your thoughts on the reportbacks? Yeah. So one thing that I think is interesting about it is that the author is really refraining from saying much of much of anything about themselves including exactly what their goal is which i mean obviously it seems to be they're doing some sort of media work for the rest of us giving a, an outsider's perspective firsthand and i think as i said before that's a really valuable thing to do because up until well up into and including now we're just getting all these sort of different stories about what's going on what do these people really want you know are they bookchinists are they saying death to gilgamesh you know all sorts of Things so I think it's it's an interesting thing for this person to be doing, but they're also, you know, it's being told in this kind of like Gonzo format of you know I was there I had this conversation, but uh, I am hoping they'll at some point give us more about what their perspective is because so far it's mostly just praising the people there. Um, there's a little bit of that uh, sort of what happens over there is more authentic than what happens over here phenomenon, I would say, which I th- has been what I've been hearing from people just sort of kicking around what's going on in Kobane. Um, Sorry, I- I'm going to interrupt that. Why do you care? In other Why words, do I care about what this like person thinks? They've, they're providing a journalistic mm-hmm. positive benefit for us. Yeah, like I said. So why so, do I care what they think? Yeah. Because... Uh, maybe I'm caught up in the uh, sort of like I want to know the ins and outs of this person's perspective so that I can then apply that schema to what they're writing and sort of tease out what their particular bias and gloss and and what the subject is bringing to the perspective I this is interesting to me because I, I feel like uh, you know, for many years I've said, sort of said that CrimeThink is doing fantastic grassroots journalism, mm-hmm. and mostly that's because they're they're 
edit they're editorially pruning and, and massaging content from people who are at, at the point of the the story usually the you know the riot the re- rebellion in a particular country and for us in the west almost everything we've heard about about uh, Rojave or Rojava I think it's Rojava Rojava is um, is from political sources that I don't trust sure and so you know not to to overinscribe on this uh, author but they're a well-known post-left author and so, so I go into reading their stuff with a different level of trust. And okay, but see, you you know that, but I, I'm saying most people who are reading this don't know that the person's post left will not do. I know, but. I know, but, but you're but you're saying that you personally, I mean, you also know this, right? But I, I was saying, as so, you're now speaking for the audience. <laughs> I'm speaking, imagining that I didn't know who this person was, but you do. But I do, and always did, right? But I'm saying that. <laughs> Reading it as someone on A News who doesn't know that—that's what I would be wondering. Yeah, no, I, I mean that's true, but that's not what you said to start with. And, and in other words, I'm—I'm I'm, the question of authorship and motivation. I'm not sure. Like, if I would have gone to this cold, I would have thought it was interesting just because it was sort of like it's A News fresh material. Sure. And so I'm not saying it's not interesting. I'm just saying that's the question I would be left with. Which is what? Which is. Were I not knowing this person, that's that would be my big question. Like, okay, well, what what's this Why? person's deal? No, I, I still don't get it then. Because I don't think there's such a thing as a neutral account. And I think the way around there not being such a thing as a neutral account is to be as well-informed about oh, their I person. I strongly disagree with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, not, not to say that that information isn't useful, but if you really want to pursue the, the story behind the story, in general, that's never going to happen in a public manner. That almost always happens face to face, and and because of your pre-existing and post-existing relationship too. Like in other words, in the context of let's say anarchist news, which obviously we spend a lot of time talking about, there's anarchist news as a as a stranger to the people who operate anarchist news, and then you know it's safe to say that I have some knowledge of the people who operate anarchist news, mm-hmm. and that's a different experience. But the, but many people don't care about that experience. Mm-hmm. And so they don't pursue the story behind the story. And, and so you're saying that in this case, because of what circumstances would you pursue this story and not pursue a story about Brazil or a story about other parts of the country that you also don't know the author of the piece? Mm-hmm. Sure. So what's different? Nothing is different between <laughs> those two situations. But I'm saying I, I would always have the, the kind of um, information greed of wanting the story behind the story. You, in most news sources, that person is not accessible. In the anarchist community, people tend to be, in the anarchist whatever, people tend to be more accessible. And so I would always want that kind of story behind the story. And it, it, It'll take your life. It's true. Yeah. A few and, grains and, of sand on an infinite beach. And, and, and also Kevin Keating will call you an irrelevant subculturalist as, uh, if you spend your life pursuing <laughs> these, ta- these things. Um, I've never claimed to be irrelevant. I think it's thin. I I love this kind of reporting, this sort of on the ground, like I- experiential, sort of immediate feedback kind of reporting. I I like the fact that it's sloppy. I like the fact that it's sort of there. There, it's going to be political things that we can tease out of it on on the level of like what their motivation is. Um, and I'm just really thankful to hear on the ground stuff of of what's happening there because I just just most of the sources have 
have on the one hand been trying to tell a story, and on the other hand been trying to tell us that Bookchin was right all the time, and <laughs> fuck that. <laughs> yeah, and the response uh, on Anus has been very positive, which I think is is interesting in itself. Awesome. Because I thought there might be a little bit of the sort of like, what are you doing going to these people's place of struggle with like you as this kind of total outsider, what do you have to offer to these people? Aren't you just going to be a burden? Isn't this your sort of individualistic fulfillment? And, you know, aren't you just going to get in the way? And there, so far, there's none of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think that um, a lot of international stories on, on anarchist news don't get very, almost never get deep responses and almost always sort of get voyeuristic, positive responses. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's because mostly the audience of Anarchist News are ignorant Americans who basically are, are uncomfortable sounding like a fool. Yeah. And a lot of times, yeah. like, well-traveled uh, North American anarchists will slap down people. Like, like there is very much a class thing here mm. where basically, like, I went there, I know these people, fuck you, honky-ass racist. And um, I'm feeling a little sweary today, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was actually thinking about the the fact that the podcast up till now has mostly been like PG. Yeah, but today we've talked about sex, and I've sworn. <laughs> 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 Anyways, um, yeah. So so it doesn't surprise me that people are really positive in terms of the their feedback, mm-hmm. um, and perhaps maybe the additional point I'd make is that the positive feedback from North American anarchists are because, in general, North Americans do fetishize foreigners. As in, it, their struggle's more authentic. For sure. That I was talking about before. Yeah. 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 I mean, someone was even saying, is this the new Catalonia? Yeah. Um, the, that's been said about uh, Rojava, Rojava since the beginning. Oh, okay. okay. Um, that was new to me. But, yeah. yeah, a lot of people sort of talk about that it, this is the Spanish Civil War of, it, of, of our, this yeah. time. Yeah. Well, the theme this week is indigeneity, and uh, this is going to be a very challenging theme for me personally, because this has been a topic that has basically dominated my entire life. And so I don't necessarily want to have a, a talk personally about about myself, for like, like, what's interesting to me about this as a topic to talk about for the podcast isn't... Um, isn't my own personal story, but um, but is I guess for the purposes of this uh, introduction, um, this has been my life project, and so a lot of times uh, I'm accused of being very cagey about what my position is or where I'm coming from, and mostly this is because I find the characteristic of people who preface every paragraph of, of with with their position. So, like, they'll say, as an anarcho-communist, I think that the economy is rotten. 
uh, and so obviously we talk about a, a certain set of positions very frequently here, and I, I speak to those positions as, as someone who's sort of thought about them, but in general am not necessarily a participant in them. Whereas in this conversation today, when we're talking about indigeneity, this has been a, a, a word that I can use to describe the thing that I've been doing for 45 years. Um, and specifically in the context of my radical politics, a lot of my radical politics has been a process of figuring out how to bridge the um, bridge the the world of school and of authority and of all of my friends currently to a world that I was raised in that was a very different sort of a world. So I say all that though to say that when I'm going to talk about indigeneity, I'm mostly going to talk about ideas, and I'm going to speak in a language that is communicable communicable to people who do not consider themselves to be indigenous or to be to or consider themselves to be involved in the project of indigeneity. In other words, for me, indigeneity is a question about practice and answers questions about practice much more than it's a conversation about identity. And so so that then leads us to um, to to talking about your or my genetic disposition not being relevant to this conversation. Um, one of the things I say in an article that I wrote on this topic is that most indigenous anarchists happen to be natives, but that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. Mm-hmm. So there's a way in which this is a conversation about first principles, right? In other words, the idea of seeing my connection to the to the land and my relationship to the world in general as being a first principle. There's also a way, and perhaps the more appropriate way, is that indigenous anarchism is where spirituality meets the Western world of describing spirituality. And so, uh, so this, so this is uh, uh, like again, you know, I'm, I'm trying to lay bare a set of values and, and ideas that that I normally pack up very tightly and don't necessarily use to to explain why I say the things that I say. But, in point of fact, I identify as an indigenous anarchist. I have been grappling with what exactly the consequences of that means for my entire adult life. And um, uh, and so, th- so I, I say that t- to get it out of the way rather than to make this conversation uh, more challenging than, than it has to be. Because, in general, I am doing this also as a public exercise. In other words, uh, a lot of my project has been to talk about indigeneity as a set of problems and as a set of practices that I am personally engaged in, and more pointedly in the context of the Black Seed paper that I edit, um, I'm, I'm doing, doing interviews with uh, native and uh, anti-authoritarian people who almost entirely what we're talking about in the context of the Black Seed interviews are questions around indigeneity. And so I'm um, rather than using my own voice to speak to uh, points that, that can be argued based on someone's preferences for, for my characteristics or, or whatever, I'm, I'm using conversations with real live natives 
uh, about these very same topics, mostly as a way to demonstrate that there are different ways to approach these topics in the essay, than the book, and that these people have uh, important things to say that should be informing uh, anarchist practice, anarchist ideas, anarchist... Uh, an, an anarchism that looks a lot like ind indigeneity could look. So, uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about some of those interviews, and some of this may relate to, to me, but that, that seems to me to the, the better way to preface what is an impossibly dense and difficult set of conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And on that note, I, uh, I guess what I pull out of what you said just now and what I pulled out from the Black Seed interviews, maybe three rough overlapping themes, the first being identity, the second indigeneity and anarchism, and then the third spirituality. And so I'd like to try to pick through that. Where's land in there? Yeah, yeah. Anyways, yeah, go on. No, good question. Hmm. Yeah, and actually an especially good one following on the, the heels of what we were talking about earlier. Um, I would actually replace identity with land. Okay, sure, let's do that. And uh, so maybe starting with indigeneity and anarchism, and actually I, I'm not sure I ever mentioned to you my first sort of encounter with you in the media world was the um, Toward an Indigenous Anarchism mm -hmm. piece that you wrote and um, and that was before we had, long before we had met in person and I found it to be a really provocative piece because you were talking about how you know, most indigenous people including ones who have what we might call a very anti-authoritarian orientation would not call themselves anarchists mm -hmm. and you did an interview with Klee Benali who does in fact call himself that and something that was interesting to me was that Klee in the interview said, quote, and my affinity with anarchism is through direct action, acting without mediation in the range of values like mutual aid. And to me, I, I was actually a bit surprised to see that he found a connection to the very classical anarchist mm -hmm. principles, ones that I, you know, a lot of, uh, of anarchists today, I think, wouldn't even necessarily say that that's their, their main attraction to it. Well, that essay was written a decade or 12 years ago. And your, your piece. Yeah, my piece. Yeah. And it was written in the context where everyone in the radical space was talking about Ward Churchill. Ah, okay. And Ward Churchill was, yeah. was an interesting provocation to anarchists because he sort of brings so much strength and power to his, to his speech. Yeah, he's very assertive, very strong. Yeah, he's yeah. very, very big physical presence. And he had just written that book that uh, talked about roosting chickens. That, uh, that yeah. sort of ended his professional career yeah. and made him a cause celeb for a little while for the for the for the left. Mm -hmm. uh, that year was also the year where he came to the bent to the Bay Anarchist Book Fair and spoke as the keynote speaker. Mm -hmm. And so, like some friends of mine were like in a security detail while I was here. Like it really had this sort of like 1970s style militants vibe yeah. to it. And so War Churchill was on everyone's tongue. Uh, he had made. He, also during that time frame he was in a series of friendly overtures towards the Green Anarchy magazine collective there was an interview with him in that in that time period uh, so he was on a lot of people's minds and he sort of led the way for people to understand why natives wouldn't call themselves anarchists because yeah. he's he was very clear and of course in point of fact, he's not only not an anarchist, you know, he's really not an anarchist. Like, he's not right. he's not an anarchist for the reasons I'm about to say. Uh, other natives would, would say the reasons, and, and the people who I've interviewed would not take Ward's approach, which is much more 1970s-style militant approach. 
But um, but I do think that it's this question of leadership is at the very heart of of uh, this question. I mean, we can talk about you know Eurocentric values and 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 the way in which the West is going to describe these these ideas. But I think it at the heart of a native cultural experience is whatever we'll use the term leadership it, it could be elders it could mm-hmm. be you know there, there's other ways to use it to, to, to use the language but my experience has been in talking to experienced native people that they just think that leadership is a real phenomenon and it's not the same as an executive branch of government it's not the same as a charismatic leader but that um, you know I think that there's an anarchist uh, uh, vibe here that's that's about being an expert, expert knowledge or something. Right, technocratic fear. But, well, no, the the idea that if, if you need your shoes fixed, you go to an expert in shoes. Okay, okay. Um, but that's not the same thing as leadership. Sure. But there's a, but even with all that said, there's something at the heart of North American anarchism that's about, fuck you, dad. <laughs> and... And that just doesn't work for most for, natives. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, obviously, it's understandable to do it when you're a teenager, or, or like for there to be a space for that. But but leadership f- fundamentally is a is a cultural value that is embraced, at least in my experience, in a way that it will just never be embraced by anarchists. Mm-hmm. So that's a long-winded way to to sort of say that like. That part of, part of these questions are, are semantics, mm-hmm. and part of these questions are about about values. Mm-hmm. So, I I do want to press you and say mm-hmm. when you talk about leadership, I mean you, what you're talking about obviously is that anarchists have an immediate allergy to that because they understand it as authority, they understand it as maybe uh, sort of technocratic rulership, you know, mm-hmm. ruled by someone who knows what they're talking about. But in the interview with Karina you started to parse out how that's a different, but maybe I can press you to talk about that a little more when you say that there's this sort of hard and fast difference where indigenous people are attracted to this idea of leadership that that's not some kind of toxic thing, and why? Well, I'm not going to speak for other people, and and again, anarchists actually have almost identical practices to what I've seen in, in Native communities. But we call it really different things. So, for okay. instance, lately we've been using the term big men all the time right. to talk about anarchists who write a lot, who are, who are known to represent established positions. Right. So for us, big man is an appropriate term to describe them because it's sort of insulting. It's sort of saying, on the one hand, we recognize that we're influenced by these people's ideas. On the other hand, fuck you, Dad. Mm-hmm. And maybe you're too big for your britches, kind of. Right, and and definitely a lot of uh, anarchist practice involves taking people down a notch. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I I'm I really recall um, when uh, Peter Gelderlus came to the U.S. He was here for months, talking to all to all kinds of people in all kinds of cities. I heard lots and lots of positive things about his actual practice. And at the very end of his stay here, someone wrote a, a um, created a blog that they said was Peter Geldrus's blog. That was nothing but takedowns. It was just a brutal takedown of of Peter as a big man, mm-hmm. and that exemplifies sort of like 
um, something that's clear in, in anarchist practice that a native practice would happen in private. Mm, okay. Now that that might be a little different now with the internet, but but uh, my experience of it was much more that like, you know, the 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 self uh, the self described chief would be laughed at by everyone around them, and that takedown would be real, but it would also come come perhaps more out of love than what we see like in the anarchist. Someone aside and saying, "Hey, you're being kind of a big man." Thought you should know. No, no, much more like when the big man walks in the room, everyone giggles under their breath. Ah, but they also grew up with the, with the person. Right. In other words, that that closeness is, is a significant dif- significant different. Whereas in the anarchist space, obviously, we are not necessarily close to each other at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I, in reading the clean interview, I was also reminded of an episode some time ago, and I'm sorry to say the number escapes me, but it was... Franklin Lopez's show, It's the End of the World, mm-hmm. if you know it, and I feel fine, where he was interviewing an, a, a self-identified indigenous anarchist who said that, distinct from Klee, that he saw the intersection being each person is their own sovereign, and they're recognized as their sovereign. And so I was surprised by that because it's a bit more of an individualist take, and I uh, felt maybe that there was a, a, a kind of... It was at odds a bit with the ideas of leadership and the, the more communitarian mm-hmm. feel that I think Klee was talking about. Well, uh, I'm, I'm not sure who that person was, but I will say that there was an essay in the short-lived right. egoist paper, The Sovereign yeah. Self, called something like Towards an Indigenous, indigenous Egoism. egoism yeah. And um, uh, I've, I've spoken to a couple sort of elder-type people since then about their take on that, on that piece. And um, and this this enters us into a terrain that would be really familiar for anarchists in, ter- in terms of our literary criticism. But uh, uh, some people read that as a person who was maybe not that connected to uh, mm. traditional mm-hmm. uh, tribal values. Um, I think that... Uh, it really exposes for me this problem of whose words do we get to use to, to describe sort of our experience. And so uh, I think it's entirely interesting that this person is, is burying themselves deep into anarchist uh, pedagogy and coming out of it to sort of reconciling their cultural values with, with anarchist pedagogy um, in, in the context of that article, which, I'll, which we'll link to. But... Um, uh, I'm not sure. Like, there isn't, there aren't. So I, I this is this is sort of a breakout point, but um, but I, I make it fairly frequently, and it probably would be an unpopular point to make in a lot of native circles, and so this has to do with like the difference between, like. I can speak to a tribal affiliation and I can speak to a world that I came from, but a lot of, most of these ideas don't come from that background. Mm-hmm. And so in, in my strong sense, if there were 500 nations in North America when the white man came, there are a couple dozen mm-hmm. today. In other words, or to put it differently, I experience my native 
background as being more a question of what does it look like to be a post-genocided people sure. than I do to say that my that the Adawa people should be defended and that and that there and that there's a fight to be had there. The fight has already happened and we lost. And so I can't speak to what a value system that looks like an Adawa people from the Traverse Bay area looks like. Um, you know, I can speak more uh, authoritatively to a little place called Indian Village that that's where my, you know, second ge- two generations away people lived who were maids and workmen for the, the big plantation vacation homes that, that r- rose up in the early 20th century. But that's not, you know, that's not a value system worth fighting for. That said, there's a lot of people who, who you know, I'll be interviewing in the future and a lot of people who, who are wrestling with this intersection of anarchism and in, indigeneity who, um, who are from intact tribal groups. And so Klee is a, is a really good example of that because they, 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 they actually live like, like the Navajo people, sorry, the Diné people, there's a lot of them. There are many of them, more than everyone else combined, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, and the person who wrote the Indigenous Egoism piece was Lakota, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of a lot of Lakota too, a lot of Sioux, mm-hmm. and um, so that that gives that whole conversation sort of a different kind of weight um, uh, that I that I can't speak of for mm-hmm. myself. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, at the beginning of your interview with Clee, you asked a huge question, which was what would it look like for someone who has no spiritual practice to develop one? And this seems like something close to the hardest thing to talk about imaginable. Uh, Because it's not about an analysis so much as a way of being in the world, something that to me feels like it's beyond words. And spirituality is actually one of those slippery words that I avoid altogether. Instead, I when I try to sort of get at those ideas, I use these very Western philosophical words like phenomenality and qualia and consciousness. Um, and so I'm, I'm almost loath to talk about it, but it was such a provocative question that I feel we should, because the, these are the kinds of conversations that happen in radical spaces and sometimes badly. So I'm wondering what you mean when you ask that kind of question. What does it mean to develop a spiritual practice? You know, anarchists tend to be people who want to live these intense, passionate lives that are maybe impossible in in this world, and so they tend to dream about other worlds. And I think um, a lot of them, or a lot of us, imagine this sort of life without mediation. And I think for some people, they'd want to call this a spirituality. But what do you mean by it? Well, I think I'm being more pres- more precise, I guess, in the sense that um, we have green anarchists in the West Coast who will not take no for an answer. So in other words, most of the time when you talk about spirituality, you're talking about either embracing the monotheism of the West, right. all of which all options are shitty, some are slightly less shitty, um, or stealing someone else's culture. Right. Which is something that Klee gets at. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, that would be... I mean, Klee has a, a common yet, you know, like... Like that's your experience of white people coming to the res to to learn about spirituality is always going to be toxic. Right. I mean, you know, we also have a third option, which a lot of anarchists also seem to be sort of uh, devising, which is to create some sort of synth- uh, synthetic European spirituality that 
that one is a descendant of. So in other words, they're, they're stealing, which is you know, going to, to the crystal palaces and, and having, having the beam of native light shine on you. And then there is recreating Nordic or Celtic mythology as something that one can practice today. So rather than choosing monotheism, choosing polytheism. Mm-hmm. And so, um, whatever. All the reasons to, to be revulsed by that or to feel as though that's gross are more or less the same as to, you know, it's sort of just as valid as stealing other people if you're just going to take someone else's value system and make it your own. Either way, it's not one that you lived from your childhood. Right, but, but that's a really hard road to go because in general people become more spiritual as they age. Spirituality tends not to be a pursuit, at least in, in this in this world. Spirituality isn't a thing of youth, right? You know, the infinite story of spirituality in our culture is of Bart Simpson being dragged to church. <laughs> and we all identify with Bart. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, uh, so this is a question that people really approach like almost as like a first sign of adulthood. It's like, what is my spiritual practice? Like, Obviously, I despise what my parents provided for me. What do I? What What can I provide for myself? And the answer to that question, unfortunately, is nothing. You cannot devise a spiritual practice and like it's a laboratory experiment. Like you have a theory of spirituality, and you're just set out to test your theory against Buddhism and against native spirituality, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so, this is an extremely challenging point because it basically says. Like, we as individual awesome creatures of awesomeness can't do something? Well, fuck you, I'm going to do it. Right, and there's this kind of image that comes to mind immediately for me of just sort of the the person who walks out into the woods and wants to feel some kind of immense profundity. And I'm not going to say that they feel nothing, but they probably come back with less than what they wanted, and then it outcome all these sort of feelings of inadequacy and what does my anarchism mean if I'm never going to live the life I want to live, be in the world I want to be in and it's very easy to make fun of that person but it's also I think very easy to, to say yeah, to be that, that sucks yeah. and yeah, to feel empathy for that person, say yeah, that fucking sucks yeah, I'm, I, again this is, uh, this is the second time we've, we've sort of talked around these points because uh, I I know this because the the thing I said last time, which is what what I'll say this time, is that I wrote about this in the new Black Seed, um, uh, and I don't think I did it well, um, which is whatever problem. But but basically, what I'm trying to speak to is exactly that phenomena, which is that on the one hand, uh, what it looks like to, to develop a spiritual practice is going to feel partial and embarrassing and corny. Um, and and the only way to get through that is to basically commit yourself to a multi-year process of feeling inadequate. In other words, this is sort of a, a question that we could we could speak to to talk about revolution, right? And and so it's safer to do it this way because it's very secular and and it doesn't involve creepy feelings of like crouching in in a creek and 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 feeling like a goofball because you think you're touching God. If we if we if we had the same conversation about revolution, we could say that it'd be easier to make fun of the person. 
Well, I, I'm not interested in, for, yeah. for today. I'm not interested in making fun of the person. Usually, well, I'm, I'm just saying. Just to, that's the. I, I think a, that in itself speaks to a difference. Like, but go ahead. No, I think that they get made fun of a lot. I mean, uh-huh. the cover of War Churchill's Indians R Us piece is a fantastic template that's been used over and over again to, to make fun of this phenomenon. It's basically a, a chubby, ruddy-faced white dude with a headdress banging on a on a drum, and underneath, um, and underneath him are the graves of all of the people who uh, um, who uh-huh. he's stomping around on, uh-huh. and. Um, and literally, this is yeah. so. Uh, so that that's been a common sort of trope for a long time. Sure. What I'm trying to get at is the fact that that the, there's a couple mistakes in there. Okay. Well, l- let me first finish the revolution idea. The reason that I feel like conversations about post-revolutionary society are so ridiculous is because basically all of those relationships, all of that new way of living is in our imagination. And we're not doing anything to actually meaningfully practice what those new types of relationships would look like in this world. And that's mostly because we feel embarrassed to talk about peace, love, and harmony. Yeah. In the context of spirituality, the core mistake that I feel that most people make when they when they talk about spirituality in the way that we're that we're talking about it now is they practice, they try to discover spirituality alone. And spirituality ultimately is a social experience. It's a social relationship. And um, and basically incredibly bright uh, brains and jars are not going to create a spiritual practice. And they're probably not going to be able to get through the shame and the embarrassment of squatting in a creek or or you know being in in the true glory of nature and it not necessarily touching them in the way that they think it's going to mm-hmm. you have to do it with a group with a group of people so i feel like we're starting to come up on something that you said in the first episode of this podcast which you were talking a bit about animism and you were talking about the the person who wants to live animistically and then looks up and sees that they're standing right next to a highway and said that implied, I think, or maybe said that it's not possible in this world. And you at various times have been very critical of people who are positing some sort of fallen world cosmology and say that that comes from the Edenic mythos, that you're basically being a Christian and to have this kind of uh, idea of paradise lost is... Uh, a fundamentally European view and yet what I'm hearing is something like there was or or there could be a spiritual existence however for most of us it's not possible in this world so can you talk about how that's different from what you criticize well I I guess the uh, talking about the fallen world I guess I'm not exactly clear which part of that you're speaking to but I, I will say that that for me how I frame this question in most circles, because again, I, I, I like to remove myself from this conversation um, because that's just such a, it's so different when I talk about myself. Mm-hmm. But, um, but this also is about me. What does it mean to be part of a post-genocided culture? Right. I don't actually believe that white is a culture. Mm-hmm. And this makes me a little different I, I actually, and, and this is sort of a, a side provocation, my 
the reason that I despise things like race trader isn't because I think that white supremacy doesn't exist, but is because race trader as part of its methodology um, is deeply materialist communist in orientation because it believes that before we can become free post-racial people that white people have to be forced through a process of becoming white aka proletarians before they can achieve race traitorness aka revolutionary intelligence and and so for me the structural nature and the structural parallels there speak to this question of, of what does it mean to be a post-genocided people? Or to put it more pointedly, you come from a place, you probably even were taught certain cultural values that may or may not have had linkages to that place, but, but you definitely were taught cultural values. At what point can we start creating? At what point is, is that something that we can do? And so, um, and so ultimately, like, I'm in favor of people doing embarrassing, self-determined, animistic activities and being embarrassed in that process. But that path is long and brutal, and if you do it lonely, will will fail. So, so my my action plan for for people who who this is important to them is find your people and then find your language, and that finding your language is a life project. It's not something to do tomorrow. You know, that it's not something that, that's going to look like a series of checklists that, you know, we can, we can push on certain parts and, and ease off on certain parts. Like it looks like the embarrassing, it looks like embarrassing work. And so now we're, I think, broaching the subject of land and identity. And one of the words that's become common anarchist parlance is bioregionalism, right, too. And, uh, and I did want to just give a, a quick nod to the William Gillis thing where you know, bioregionalism is seen as this limitation, a sort of prison, this uh, monotonous, which was a really surprising word for me, as though uh, we are becoming incredibly self-limiting or putting these sorts of horrible impingements on our freedom by doing this. However, that seems to, you know, in some of the interviews that you did, there's even um, this kind of talk of a sense of place, right? Mm -hmm. And for a place to become spiritual, which I was reading as people actually investing in their habitat, connecting to it, living there, seeing the changes of the place, having it change them and being changed by it, or having it change them and changing it. And uh, I think um, maybe that's that's another sort of thing that a lot of anarchists have this allergy to because sometimes the way that gets talked about is through racist language, right? That somehow having uh, people belong to a place or having a place be appropriate to a certain set of people is to get sort of caught up in someone's race identity in this scary way. And I think that's another point of uh, splitting between the, what uh, an indigenous perspective might be versus a North American anarchist one. Yeah, the the big challenge in in that phrase, which that that sort of package deal, is as beautiful as all of that sounds, and as much as I agree with with it in in spirit, I think it's also impossible. The sense of place and and the habitat language that I was talking about synthetically uh, uh, 
setting that as a goal mm-hmm. and then setting yourself upon achieving it. Mm-hmm. I I've yet to see a way, and 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 mostly this is sort of like through um, my father and his set of friends in the early seventies bought a piece of land together that was abutted uh, several tens of thousands of acres of of state land, and so so it was one of the few sort of perfect moments where they they purchased this land and you could basically travel for days and days yeah if you if you so desired and so uh, when I compare their project to most of what I see my friends able to achieve right most of what I see my friends able to achieve looks like a heterosexual monogamous homesteading um, and so this project was truly like at least six different family groups and and it was built from the ground up as being this sort of collective project it turns out that that part of that was because of the generosity of a person i didn't discover this until i was a full adult and sometimes i i attempt this this land still exists it's absolutely where i came to be who i am um but the but the point is is that and it also failed like the circumstances for it were far superior to what I see as a lot of my peers tr- attempt to do, and it totally failed. It ended up being a place that was only used on the weekends, mostly for, for partying, and mostly nobody goes there anymore. And it's now a bit nearly abandoned, and um, and so that sort of speaks to whatever like a type of example. Um, um, and I've lost the train of thought of mm-hmm. what the kind of question was. Mm-hmm. And did you, okay, do you think that comes from this kind of fallen world cosmology orientation of we're going to get, climb our way back into heaven, or we, we can, uh, we are expelled from Eden, but Eden is still within us, and we can recreate it if only we really try, and do you think that in... Uh, right. No, right, so, so where I fall on this question ultimately has to do with the same language can be used to talk about revolution. And this is where I draw the Christian parallels all the time to people who talk about revolution as if it's something that will can be achieved by having increasingly larger riots until eventually we overturn everything. And um, and so for, so for me, the, the, these questions are totally central. And, and since we're at the end of our hour... Like in other words, I don't have an answer to, to sure. this directly, other than to say that yes, somewhere in here is is some version of an action plan that I don't share. Um, this is a very important topic, and perhaps next week we should have the theme be revolution. Sure, sounds good. Thank you for listening to episode ten of the Brilliant, and it sounds like episode eleven is going to be revolution. So, and I'm Aragorn, and I'm Bellamy. And Roy Burton has been doing fantastic work. It looks like this week we finally caught up. And uh, it could be that you'll be listening to episode uh, 10 the week after we record it, rather than weeks after we record it. Uh, This episode was recorded on October 30th. And see you soon.